You're listening to the Keep Going Podcast, where we keep going after the heart of God because He's our only hope. I'm Nika Maples. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 12 of the Keep Going Podcast. Right now, we're in a series called A Walk Through the Psalms, and today our focus is on Psalm 73 all the way to 89. Just a note, I use the New Living Translation as my primary text because it's readable, and I don't approach these podcasts as a scholar, but as a lover of the Word who wants to share simple spiritual observations from my own daily Bible reading. Let's review all the previous podcasts in two points. Number one, we have found connections between the five books or sections of the Psalms and the first five books of the Bible. Number two, again and again, we have seen how God's faithful character runs right through the Old Testament straight into the New Testament. When I was in my 20s, I picked up Brett, the son of a family friend, to keep him after school for a few hours every Wednesday. He was 10 years old. And I'd help him with homework or take him to a museum or we'd go get snow cones until it was time for him to go home in the early evening. We had so much fun and we both enjoyed it. Our routine was interrupted though when I felt the call to serve as a missionary in Thailand. So I told Brett my plans and that I wouldn't be picking him up from school the following year. He was disappointed. He said, come on, don't leave. You don't have to go. My parents have a guest house. We can hang posters of Thailand in the windows and we'll serve you rice and fish every night. You'll think you're there. I laughed and told him that just wasn't the same. And he sighed and said something that I'm sure was straight from the Lord by way of his 10-year-old mouth. Okay, fine, go to Thailand if you have to. But promise me that you will read the whole Bible while you're there, cover to cover. Promise me. It's the only way that I'll know you're safe. Okay, I said, I promise. I'll read the whole Bible, cover to cover. Mind you, at 24 years old, this was something I had never done. But Brett wasn't finished. No, Nika, I want something in writing. I have to know you're safe and I want a contract. He made me draw up a contract that I would read the whole Bible and we both signed it. Now, I added in a suggestion that he try to read all four Gospels while I was gone, but that wasn't in the contract. We both understood it was a unilateral contract. That means that my promise to read the whole Bible did not hinge on whether Brett did anything. I committed to him that I would read it in nine months, and for the first time, I did. I even got through Leviticus, and I'm forever thankful to Brett for giving me a good reason to push through it. Can you believe that it became a delightful revelation to me to read Leviticus through for the first time? Most people say that Leviticus is the killing fields where their annual Bible reading resolutions go to die. It always was for me until that time in Thailand, and since then I can enjoy the richness even in that dry book. As you know, I'm quite behind in my podcasts for our Walk Through the Psalms series, but if you've continued to read one psalm per day, then you know that I stopped right at the beginning of Book 3 in the Psalms, which corresponds to everyone's favorite book from the Pentateuch, Leviticus. 
In an effort to catch up a little bit, I'm going to connect all of book three of the Psalms and all of Leviticus in this one podcast. It will be a podcast that is a little bit longer than usual, but I think there's some good here that you'll want to hear. Now, step into Leviticus to connect our thoughts to one unexpected theme, salt. The title Leviticus comes from a Greek word that means pertaining to the Levites, who were priests. This is God's instruction booklet spoken through Moses to the tribe of Levi, specifically to Aaron and his sons. It is detailed to say the least, and that's why we're so tempted to bypass it. Show me the person who actually likes reading instruction booklets in their free time. But there are incredible treasures for us here. And today we are going to find one in Leviticus 2.13. In that verse, Moses is explaining the process of presenting various offerings to the Lord. He says, Season all your grain offerings with salt to remind you of God's eternal covenant. Never forget to add salt to your grain offerings. When I was reading through Leviticus, looking for connections to book three of the Psalms, I could not get past those two sentences. Season all your grain offerings with salt to remind you of God's eternal covenant. Never forget to add salt to your grain offerings. What does that even mean? Well, I'll tell you what I think it means now. And as I always say at the beginning of these podcasts, this is my own interpretation, which is not a scholarly interpretation. So you may very well find commentaries on this verse that tell you I'm off. However, if this interpretation resonates with you, and if the Holy Spirit applies it to you personally, then by all means, pray it into action. And know that I would never present any interpretation of scripture that is not in line with the holistic message of the Bible. So you can trust me in that. For a long time, I have thought of salt as symbolic of peace. One day I was reading Mark 9, 49 through 50, and it says, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves, then, and be at peace with each other. I had always thought of that verse as being about our Christian lives and witness. You know, like once you lose your belief and your reputation, how can you get it back? But that last sentence, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. That's from the NIV, by the way. Have salt, it says. Have salt. I started regularly praying that my relationships would have salt so that we would all be at peace with one another. Nothing is more important to me than leading a life of peace and living in a peaceful home, truly. So I always ask God, help me to have salt. If salt represents peace in the book of Mark, and we bring that understanding into the book of Leviticus, doesn't it still make sense? The priests are instructed, never forget to add salt to your offerings. If salt is peace, then it is saying, present your offerings to the Lord with peace. And isn't that a faithful echo of another well-known passage from the New Testament? Let's look at Matthew 5, 23-24. This is Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, 
If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. You know what that sounds like to me? Jesus telling his followers to come to the altar in peace sounds like Moses telling the priests, never forget to add salt to your offerings. I don't really have to remind you that today there are no Levites and we are the royal priesthood. Salt is peace. Go make peace, Jesus said, then come back and make your offerings. Okay, but what does that have to do with book three of the Psalms? Well, that verse in Leviticus 2.13 begins with why we have to add salt to our offerings. The NLT says we do it to remember the salt of God's eternal covenant. And so I almost missed it when it was phrased that way. But other versions of the Bible say add salt to your offerings to remind you of the covenant of salt. The covenant of salt, huh? I had to look this up. In 2 Chronicles 13.5, we read, Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and to his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Hmm, a covenant of salt. So maybe God made with David a covenant of peace. Remember that this instruction in Leviticus was way long before David was ever in the picture. But God's faithfulness is forever, and he may have been putting into place an advanced and enduring reminder of what he was about to do through the coming kingship. The people knew that salt was a method of preservation. Therefore, adding salt to the offerings reminded them that God was preserving his covenant with Israel. He would be faithful, period. Our touchstone verse is from Psalms 89, 19-37. It's long, so I won't read the whole thing, but here is where the Davidic covenant is explained in detail. I'll read an excerpt. Referring to David, God says, I will love him and be kind to him forever. My covenant with him will never end. I will preserve an heir for him. His throne will be as endless as the days of heaven. But if his descendants forsake my instructions, and if they fail to obey my regulations, if they do not obey my decrees and fail to keep my commands, then I will punish their sin with the rod and their disobedience with beating. But I will never stop loving him, nor fail to keep my promise to him. No, I will not break my covenant. I will not take back a single word I have said. I have sworn an oath to David, and in my holiness I cannot lie. His dynasty will go on forever. You notice in this verse that the covenant is eternal, but there is an expectation of submission from David and his descendants. Disobedience would bring discipline, but it would never dissolve the loving covenant. Just like my Bible reading contract with Brett did not depend on what Brett did, God's covenant with David did not depend on what David did. Yet I think it is important to note that a loving covenant creates a safe place within which one can submit. The things David did or didn't do would not change God's unconditional love. But God's unconditional love 
would change the things David chose to do or not do. Submission was to be his response to love. We are going to explore submission a little more in a minute. The Davidic covenant is eternal, but there are no more successors to his throne now. Jesus is the final and forever king. So the covenant of salt, which is a symbol we said of peace, is fulfilled in Jesus. Read with me in Ephesians 2, where Paul is teaching the Gentiles. He tells them that they were once foreigners to the covenants of the promise. He says, For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made Jews and Gentiles into one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, thus making peace. And in one body he has reconciled both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. At one time, Jews were the only beneficiaries of the covenant of salt through King David. But today, both Jews and Gentiles are beneficiaries of the covenant of peace through King Jesus. That's why Jesus can boldly and confidently expect us to leave our offerings at the altar when there is unrest in our lives and go make peace with people, then come back and finish giving our offerings. Peace with the people in our lives is possible because Jesus is our peace. He said that twice in that verse in Ephesians, and he said another thing twice, that he has destroyed hostility. I've been thinking a lot about hostility. I have a new view of that word. Some people are foodies, but I am a wordy. Words are my currency. So when I recently asked God the next thing he wanted me to focus on in my teaching, he said, think about meekness. Think about what it means to be meek. At that moment, I really didn't get meekness, which is probably why he wanted me to think about it. See, to me, meekness has always seemed like a personality trait, one that I didn't have. If being meek is being quiet and shy, then I'm not meek at all. Whenever I read Bible verses about being meek, it always felt like God was asking me to change my personality. So I avoided thinking about meekness altogether. But this time he was urging me to think about it, and I was willing to press in. I ask him, okay, I don't understand meekness, so what does it mean if I choose not to be meek? And he answered this wordy as clear as day. Well, Nika, the reason you need to learn about being meek is because sometimes you can be hostile. Hostile? That's the worst word ever. Hostile? But immediately I knew what he meant. There are times when I choose self-protective behavior and nonverbal communication, and it can be called hostile because I'm putting my own fear ahead of the other person's feelings. I'm putting myself above them. I knew God wanted me to study further into it, and so I looked up the word hostile, and the dictionary read, of or relating to the enemy. I had to read that twice. To be hostile is to engage in something of or relating to the enemy. The enemy. I'm saying that in all caps. 
Well, then, I had to look up meekness, of course. The dictionary read, The willingness to be like the lamb to the slaughter. I had to read that twice. To be meek is to be willing to be led like the lamb to the slaughter. The lamb. I'm saying that in all caps. The difference between hostility and meekness is the difference between being like the enemy and being like the lamb of God. For me, willingness was the key concept. To be willing is to make a deliberate decision in advance to say yes. That's submission. As it turns out, meekness is not a personality trait, but a character trait. Last fall, one of my professors was introducing me to a group and he said, if you don't know Nika, you will want to get to know her. I'll just say this. She's feisty. She's feisty, but submitted. I laughed. And later I looked up the word feisty. Feisty means brave and full of life. Okay, I'm feisty, but submitted. I'll take that. My personality trait is feistiness. My character trait is submission. Alert! We are about to enter a lesson on submission within this lesson on peace. Let me stop you before you turn off this podcast thinking, nope, I don't like thinking about submission. And besides, what does Nika know about it? She's never had to submit to a husband and so she doesn't even really know what she's talking about. I have never had to submit to a husband. That is a stone cold fact. But if you think marriage is the only place that we are to operate in submission, you should keep listening. And I promise I'll focus more on submission in my life than in yours. It won't hurt. Come on. Christians are to lead lives of holy submission. And God's loving covenant gives us a safe place within which to do that. We can trust him even when we cannot trust the people to whom we are submitting. I won't go into biblical references where we're asked to submit to the authority of our employers, our leaders, or to one another. All of those acts of submission are to be done in reverence for Christ, it says. Our eyes are to be on him when we submit to people. And even when the Bible tells wives to submit to their husbands, it says, as you do to the Lord. There is an assumption that these Christian women are already submitting to Jesus. So submitting is not a new thing that begins with marriage. No way. Right now, I am already doing what I will be doing when I get married. I'm submitting. And hopefully, whoever I will marry is submitting to Jesus right now himself. And he will continue to do so when we marry, which is what is going to make it a whole lot easier to submit to him. He answers to the highest authority, just like I do. So how do we submit directly to Jesus? Well, in listening to his voice in little and big things. There have been times I have felt him asking me to give up huge things in my life, to take enormous leaps of faith, like that time I went to live in Thailand. But I think it would be better right here to illustrate this principle through a small submission. I'll give you a very recent example. The other day, I was putting on my makeup, getting ready for church. I was already dressed, and I heard the Lord say softly, Nika, please go and change your shirt. I'll be honest, my first thought was, sure, in a minute. And I just kept on putting on my makeup and fixing my hair. 
Now, I know why he brought that shirt to my attention in that moment. I had worn it dozens of times, actually, but I usually put a cardigan on top of it. I was wearing it without a cardigan this time, and when I had looked in the mirror, it had crossed my mind that the shirt was a little bit revealing. But I dismissed it, thinking, hey, it's not any worse than any other woman wears to church. Well, what other women do is not my barometer. By the time I finished my face and hair, I would have been late to church if I had changed clothes. So I just headed toward the front door, thinking in my heart, Lord, I heard you on the shirt thing. This will be the last time I ever wear it like this. But I'll be late to pray with the altar team before service if I go back and change clothes now. I'll be late for the altar. Isn't that hilarious? Do you see what we do? We think we can go and make an offering to the Lord any old way we want. But what he wants is for us to leave the altar and make peace with him first. When we do not submit to him, we are not at peace with him. See, I would have served at the altar that day from a place of unrest in my spirit, not a place of peace. How effective would I have been in praying for others? With my hand on that doorknob to leave, the Lord said softly again, but with a little more clarity, Nika, I would be so pleased if you would go and change your shirt. That right there is a wonderful way to ask for submission. God did not order me to go back and change my shirt. He did not say, you must change clothes. He framed his request in terms of what would please him. And he already knows pleasing him is my priority. So there wasn't even a word of protest from me after that. I ran back and changed that shirt. When he put it in terms of pleasing him, Submission sounded like service to me, and I wanted to do it. Alert! We are about to enter a lesson on modesty within this lesson on submission within this lesson on peace. Have you ever seen the movie Inception? This has just turned into the Inception podcast. But I'll crawl us all back to where we were. Just wait. You notice in the story that God was concerned about what I chose to wear. It makes me think of another verse, one that I wrote out in bright red lipstick across my bathroom mirror back when I was in high school. It's from 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. I'm going to read the whole thing with a couple breaks for commentary because if there was ever a verse that connects peace to submission to modesty, this one is it. It reads, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, and when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Commentary. In case any woman who is married to an unbeliever kind of checked out when she heard me say that it would be easier to submit to a man who is submitted to Christ, please check back in. That verse I just read did not exclude you. In fact, it was speaking to you. It says that the irresistible beauty of your submission may be a factor in your husband's desire for salvation. Submission is irresistibly beautiful. Read on with me. 
Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Time for commentary again. The reason women do not like to talk about or even think about submission is because of fear. Maybe we're afraid that we'll lose our identity or lose our rights or lose our individuality or just flat be walked on. But ultimately, when we submit, we're submitting to Jesus. And Jesus has never done any of those things to me when I have submitted to him. In fact, he uses my submission to empower me. A gentle and quiet spirit is a character trait, not a personality trait. Outwardly, I may laugh loud sometimes. I kind of talk loud sometimes. That's my outward personality trait. But a gentle and quiet spirit is my inward character trait. It is a heart at peace with God. And anyone who has that is beautiful. A final word to women. And wait, men, because you're going to be next. We don't have to dress in ways that will turn a man's head. We don't have to resort to cheap beauty through dressing to get attention. Whether you are married or not, let me ask you this question. Don't you want a man who can walk on water? I do. Well, when Peter, a rough and ordinary man, was able to walk on water, he did it by keeping his eyes fixed on Jesus. The moment he turned his head, he sunk. It does not escape me that the person who wrote this verse about women making themselves inwardly attractive, not outwardly attractive, was Peter. If anyone knew how dangerous it was for a man to take his eyes off Jesus, it was him. He would tell you that sometimes attraction is distraction. You already said that you want a man who can walk on water. So do you really want to turn his head to look at you? Is that really what you want? Or do you want to do everything within your power to support what he's trying to do, which is keeping his eyes fixed on the face of Christ so that he can usher in those impossible walk-on-water miracles for your family's lives? Do not distract him. And here's another thing I feel led to say. Don't try to capture his attention by purposefully appealing to other men so that he'll sit up and take notice that you have been noticed. That should never be your aim. Please give your husband the gift of trusting you, which will give him peace so that at least when he's walking on water, he's not trying to walk on water that is a choppy sea. Don't dress to draw attention to yourself. Modesty is submission to God. Be pretty, yes, I'm all about doing what you can to be beautiful. But a lovely conservative appearance fosters peace in the hearts of men. And God loves his sons. He will bless you for blessing them. If you are not overly concerned with your outward beauty, that frees you up to cultivate your inner beauty, 
which is your one irresistible and unfading quality anyway. Here's a way to evaluate yourself. Does it take you about 45 minutes to get dressed to go to work or to go out at night? Well, did you also spend about 45 minutes preparing your heart for the day through the word and worship? Do you spend an hour three days a week at the gym? Good. But do you also spend an hour three days a week on your spiritual fitness? If not, then something is off kilter about your method of cultivating beauty. And I'm not talking about minute-for-minute legalism here. But I am talking about a general principle of balance. Invest in your inward beauty, which is enduring. And now to the men who want to walk on water, who want to usher in impossible miracles for the kingdom. This word is for you. Remember that a loving covenant provides a safe place to submit. That final verse in the passage in 1 Peter says that husbands must be considerate of their wives so that their own prayers will not be hindered. Hindered, it says. Your treatment of your wife is the condition upon which your prayers will be effective. It means you can fast and pray on your face ten times a day, but if you aren't cherishing your wife and living at peace with her, then your words are blocked. They don't even reach God. Go read it for yourself. 1 Peter 3, 7. I'm saying this because I love you. Jesus really meant it when he said, Leave the altar, go make peace, and then come back and make an offering. The cross doesn't just have a vertical bar representing the path of people to God. It also has a horizontal bar representing the path of people to people. Only when you have the vertical and the horizontal in place do you have real power in your life. The cross destroys the dividing wall of hostility so that we can live at peace with one another. Is there anyone with whom you are not living at peace? Then leave the altar immediately and go make peace. Don't wait another day. God will be so pleased. And if you can't make yourself forgive or bless or act in love or reconcile with those you have distance, then go somewhere, get quiet, and ask the Holy Spirit to show you the exact steps you can take. Then take them. We are on a walk through the Psalms. P-S-A-L-M-S. Psalms are songs of praise. And have you ever heard the word Psalter? P-S-A-L-T-E-R. A Psalter is a book of Psalms. Right in the middle of that word is another word, salt. I like that. It makes me think of it this way. In order to bring an offering of praise, we have to bring it with peace. In other words, in order to have a Psalter, we must have salt at the altar. But um ching. Today's music is from Psalm 51 by Shane and Shane and is used with permission. Have you ordered my new book, Hunting Hope? It offers hope to anyone facing a season of darkness. Go to my website, nikamaples.com, to find out more. 
There you can sign up for my email list, which enables you to receive a message of hope every month. And by the way, if you enjoy this podcast, tell someone about it or post a review on iTunes. And now, from Proverbs 23:17, may we always continue to fear the Lord. We'll be rewarded for this, and our hope will not be cut off. We'll talk soon. Until then, keep going. The chief of sin is to proclaim.